it still morning? Oh, it's afternoon. Before I actually get into uh, the main teaching today, I just want to again share with you something which is very close to my heart, and um, it is around the persecuted church. And I know that quite a number of people here have children and also work with children, as I do. And one story, a couple of stories actually that came through, which I think just put into perspective um, how severe persecution is and how critically it becomes to Christians and how, you know, and, and, and in one case it's in North Korea, which is listed by Open Doors, uh, one of the organizations which has been called to focus on the persecuted church. And in North Korea, what is happening is that the authorities, what they do now in the school is actually brainwatch the children to, when they go home, to note and observe if they see their parents or members of their family, adults, praying and report it back to the authorities. And then the authorities will move in and take them arrested and quite often never heard again, heard of again. So that is, you know, how severe the persecution is in North Korea. And equally disturbed is in Iran. And what the authorities have started to do, because again, it's not a country which is listed as being high up in terms of persecuting believers. What the teachers have been instructed to do is to simply go into the classroom and say, how many children recognize what this book is? And of course, children being in the center also already. If you were like me when you was a child, if you knew something, you'd shoot your hand up straight away. And um, a number of children, not many, would say, yes, I know what it is. And um, said, what is it? A Bible. Immediately, that child, the authorities would be notified, and that child, their home, would most likely be raided to find out if the family are Christians in secret. So, you know, <laughs> yes, in one sense, yeah, we are relieved that we don't actually have to concern ourselves with that kind of persecution in this country. As I've said so many times before, when we leave our homes, we don't think, oh, I wonder if the police or any other person in any official position is going to stop or interfere. We still have that freedom, that liberty in this country. But for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, that freedom is non-existent. But yet somehow, by the power of God, many of them are prepared to you know, sacrifice everything in, for the name of Christ. I hear of stories where families, you know, have been cast out. Everything has been removed from them. Their families, their possessions, their jobs, and they're hounded day and night. But yet, I can't even, to be quite frank, to be honest, comprehend how these people still stand firm, right? Through the power, through the grace of God. And I often time feel ashamed and says, Lord, um, I sometimes, when I should witness, don't witness. Sometimes when I have to get up and pray, I sometimes shouldn't, I don't get up and pray. All these, what I could say, relatively easy things which God has set me, I sometimes find my bit of struggle. struggle. But yet, they are my brothers and sisters who put me to shame on a daily basis what they have to endure. But then I ask myself before the Lord and says, what if and when this persecution comes to my door, will I have 
the courage. And within myself, I can't say with total integrity, yes. I could only say, Lord, I hope I would have that courage to stand firm, irrespective of what I stand to lose for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ. And as Pastor E said, I remembered some time ago, um, when we were over in Brooklyn, he says, persecution is coming. Right? Be on our guard. So, just thought I'd share that with you before we go into our main text. I've invited Brother Jason, if you'd like to just come and just read the main portion of scripture we will be um, covering today. If you'd like to turn to your Bibles, um, we're reading from the book of James, chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. I don't know why you asked me to read it, I can't read very good. He does the Bible studies on Wednesday, so... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this this is like a, you know what I mean, you're not going to come now. I'm going to give you a minute. If you could get to James, chapter 2, 14 to 26. What does it profit, my brethren... If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, do you not give them the thing, and you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Amen. Thank you, Jason. Right, the book of James, which, as I understand it traditionally, was written by the Lord's brother, not James, the brother of John, which is the main book we've been studying. And the reformer, Martin Luther, I believe, once said he wished the book of James was not in the Bible because it seems to go contrary to the teaching of faith alone being the essence of our salvation. But let me put um, just a simple everyday analogy to you. Uh, example of a caterpillar and a butterfly. Caterpillar, as you see, just creeping along in that sort of form. And then it goes through that, um, what's called metamorphosis, and then it's transformed into a butterfly. Now, if I was to ask you, what is the most evident thing about a butterfly? You most likely will say it actually can fly. If that butterfly didn't fly you'd raise question of whether or not it has actually is a butterfly. And so in a sense, um, just to kind of um, set the tone, if we say we have faith, but yet it is not evident by our works, how much is our faith really based on any 
authenticity. So faith is, essential, is certainly a central element in the Christian life. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever who draws near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The Christian is saved by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So we know it is by God's own gift of faith that we are saved. The Christian, however, is to walk, live by faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. So whatever we do apart from faith is described as sin. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So it is important to realize, however, that there are, however, it is important that there are different kinds of faith. Not all faith is the same. But there's only one true saving faith. In the book of James, which we've just read, we find James discussing the, the different kinds of faith with an emphasis upon that faith which works to the saving of the soul. We see beginning with verse 14, 17, we notice the first kind of faith. We might call this faith dead faith. Now, what is dead faith? I grew up in Jamaica where everyone seems to have faith. You know, um, the people who didn't go to church, people who weren't um, professing Christians, you ask them, do you believe in God? Do you believe in the story of the gospel? Do you believe in the Old Testament? Do you believe that Jesus is coming back? And they will say, yes, 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 yes. But yet, you ask yourself, even as a child, how is it then that you're doing all those other things which are contrary to the Christian faith? So they had a certain kind of faith. They believe in what the Bible says. Um, but... Their life did not reflect anything that the Bible requires them to obey. So this first kind of faith is what I would term dead faith. Right? We can almost substitute it for faith without deeds. So people with this kind of faith, they know the correct vocabulary. They've got the correct language. They even pray. They even got the right doctrine. You know, when you listen to them, when you hear them actually speak, and when you ask them to interpret scripture, expound scripture, they can come up with all the right term, the right language. You know, they can even quote the Bible. Sometimes I, you know, they can quote chapters and verse far better than most of us can. And, but their walk does not measure up with their talk. Yeah. It's only an intellectual kind of faith. It only exists in their minds. He or she knows the doctrine of salvation, but they have never really submitted themselves to God and trusted in Jesus for salvation. They know the right words, but they do not back up their words with their works. If you recall when we were looking through John, we came across this in the people of the Pharisees quite often. They knew scripture inside out. And at one time, if I recall, Jesus says, you're right, don't do as they do, but do as they say. They know what they're talking about. They have, you know, been schooled 
in the laws. They've been schooled in the word, but yet their lives did not reflect the word. So they know the right word, but they do not back up their words with their works. Now, again, I emphasize, I am not advocating salvation by works. I'm not saying by doing works, because sometimes I do encounter, and I'm sure you have, people who says, right, if you don't do A, you cannot be saved. Um, people who, you know, you know who comes to the door quite often, why are you so, you know, enthusiastic? Why are you so involved? You know, why do you get up every morning and you go around and knock on people's doors, you know, two by two? And quite often it's, you know, more or less a case of seeking to achieve God's merit, God's salvation by works. That is not what I'm here in any shape or form sharing. This is not what I'm promoting. This is not what. It is more, as I said, repeat again. It's about if God has done this work of salvation in you, then, right, the evidence should be of that salvation. It should show the evidence. It has to be shown. Faith has to be worked out through good works. So you do find, as I said, repeat, there is this first kind, which is dead faith, just intellectual. They have the ideas, they have the knowledge, they have the insight, but somehow not, it, it's not reflected in their life. So can this faith save? No. Three times in the passage, James emphasized that faith without works is dead. In James chapter 2, verse 17, 20, and 26, he emphasized that without works without the Christian, without the person who claimed to be a believer, actually living out this faith, then their faith is dead. So do you want to be shown you're a foolish person, that faith apart from work is useless? Right? So you can't just say, I have faith, but yet the evidence of my life is not reflected by that faith. So any declaration of faith that does not result in a changed life and good works is a false declaration, a dead faith. Dead faith is counterfeit faith and lulls the person into a false confidence of eternal life, false sense of security. So, right, it has to be, as I said, reflective of that faith in Jesus Christ. It's interesting, I, I was wondering about why was it that James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this book and you come up with your own ideas. I wondered if, because as we understood, he only became a Christian subsequent to Jesus' death and resurrection. He was not a Christian. He was not a follower of Jesus during Jesus' ministry on earth. I often wondered if James was in some way, God had started to prepare him to actually write this account because he did not believe, he did not perhaps understand fully the messages that Jesus had brought, but he would have seen Jesus' life. And maybe looking back now, when God began to somehow direct him to write this account, he recalled, right, my brother, I couldn't understand him, I didn't quite believe, but what I saw in his life right, was a perfect illustration of God. And even I myself, I remembered when I was a Sunday school pupil, and I can call his name, his name, a gentleman named Peter Horn. There he was, you know, Yorkshireman, who came all the way down to Brixton. And even though we were very rowdy, every Sunday Peter was there. And during the week Peter was there. He would be taking us all over the place where, you know, our parents couldn't afford. And 
Peter would be teaching us, you know, as often as he could about the message of salvation with a certain amount of zeal and enthusiasm, even when we weren't listening. And to be quite frank, <laughs> even as a young teenager, I already understood what he was talking about. When he was talking about, I remembered about the baptism of um, salvation, etc., and all those, you know, terms. I couldn't understand. But what I remembered about Peter was the life he led. And even now, some of my former Sunday school colleagues who didn't went on to become Christian says, that man, he lived out his faith. Yeah, wherever we were, even when we were so rowdy in Sunday school, even when we got up to mischief when we went out on Sunday school outings, yet this man stood by his faith. And so I saw a very living example of somebody who lived out their faith. So, getting back to the text, we have to ask ourselves, do we have this dead faith? Is our faith dead or is our faith alive? Do we walk by walk in our faith? Do we actually live out our faith? Does it measure up to our talk? Does it measure up to our profession? Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not for one moment saying that any of us are as perfect as Jesus was. We do slip up. We do fall down. We do come short at times. And that's why God's grace is so necessary for our daily walk. But the question is, are we seeking, are we continually seeking God to enable him to live out that faith he has planted in our lives, in our daily situations? Or is it just something that we profess when we come to church or when we read the Bible or when we pray, we seem to get very religious. But apart from that, our lives is no different from those that are unsafe. So do our works measure up to our words? So we need to be aware that it's not just a mere intellectual faith. As Warren Worsby, great Bible teacher, says, no man can come to Christ by faith and remain the same any more than he can come into contact with a 220-volt wire and remain the same. (laughs) Right? So compare this with 1 John 5, verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Simple. Not asking you to go into a complex understanding. Just simply, do you have Jesus or do you not have Jesus? That's it. Straight. Right? Right, black and white, right or wrong. Now, the next kind of faith is found and discussed in verse 18 and 19. And it's what I would term, yeah, use the term very uh, carefully, demonic faith. Right, perhaps to shock any complacent reader, James reminds us that even demons have a kind of faith, they believe in God. They even believe in the deity of Christ. Mark chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. We see an encounter there. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, that is Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. So even the demons recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. They also believe in the existence of a place of condemnation. Luke chapter 8, verse 31. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. That is, you know, the place of final condemnation. 
And they believe Jesus will be the judge. Matthew 8, verse 28 and 29. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So they knew. You see, the demons knew. They recognized who Jesus is. Right? So what kind of a faith do demons have? We saw that the man with dead faith was touched only in his mind, in his intellect. Whereas the demons are touched also in their feelings, their emotions. They believe and tremble. This is one step above. This might seem a progression above dead faith. It involves both intellect, understanding, and feelings, emotions. Question for all of us, including myself. Can this kind of faith save? Definitely not. No. A person can be enlightened in his mind and even stirred in his heart and still be lost forever. True saving faith involves something more, something that can be seen and recognized, a changed life. There has to be that transformation. There has to be that conversion. Being a Christian involves trusting Christ and living for Christ. You first receive the life, then you reveal the life. Now, do we have this kind of faith? We do if we just believe the right things and feel the right things. We do if our service to God does not go beyond intellectually adhering to the right doctrines and just experiencing some emotional outbursts now and again, once more. And I'm, you know, I'm not singling that, but there are some people, yes, um, from Sunday to Sunday, right? their life is no different from the rest of the world. They're unsaved, you know, they're unregenerated, etc., but when they come to church, wow, the music stirs them. The emotions, you know, the, um, what, what I use in psychology group dynamics, you know, people, they're together with other people who are going through this, what you could say, this moment of emotional uplift. As you saw, probably when you've ever watched, um, I don't know if you've ever watched any of the um, documentaries on Adolf Hitler. And he was a master of um, using charisma to manipulate the audience, where suddenly he would make a particular response and this mass reaction, emotional reaction. So this, you know, this, you know, somehow everybody would get really up and hype. It happens at pop concert, etc. Sometimes it even happens in churches. People will go to these large gatherings. Why? For an emotional experience, right? And say, yes, right. I really felt this way. I really felt this way. And this again is what James is saying. It is not, yeah, necessarily, right, evidence of salvation. And again, we can sometimes, when we go into prayer, or when we go even in our time of prayer, yes, all right, we suddenly feel a certain way, and wow, that makes us think, yes, Lord, I'm truly saved because I'm feeling this way. And James is saying, no, that it is not emotional experiences any more than just having the right understanding that is the essence of our salvation. So, here it is, he's introduced two, I've introduced so far two kinds of faith that can never save. Dead faith involving the intellect alone and demonic faith involving the intellect and the emotions. But stopping there. So James closes this section by describing verse 27. The only kind of faith that can save is 
what I would term dynamic faith in verse 20, 26. Now, what kind of faith is this? We know from other passages that such faith is based upon the word of God. Romans 10, verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. Dynamic, dynamic, dynamic faith involves the whole person. Dead faith touches only the intellect. Demonic faith involves both the mind and the emotions. However, dynamic faith involves the intellect, the emotions, and the will. Right? The mind understands the truth. The heart desires and rejoices in the truth. The wills acts upon the truth. So true saving faith then leads to action. It is not simply intellectual contemplation like philosophers would engage in. It is not just mere emotionalism. It is that which leads to obedience in doing good works. And now, don't get me wrong again. I'm not saying, right, you must do A, you must do B, you must do C. But it becomes, you could, second, you could say, first nature to actually for the Christian, for the believer, to be living out the principle of Christ in their daily walk, in their daily existence. Not just when others might see and say, oh, right, such and such is such a wonderful Christian, they're doing A, B, C, and D. It's even in those private moments when nobody else's eyes are on you. And God's heart is, you know, God has touched your heart to do something, and you do it because you know it is God you're doing it in honor for. So it requires that transformation. So it requires obedience in doing good works, obedience continually, daily, permanently. Now to illustrate James, to illustrate, James refers to the two well-known persons in the Bible, two well-known persons in the Bible, Abraham and Rahab. You could not find two different persons. Abraham was the father of the Jews, father of the Hebrews. Rahab was a Gentile. Abram was a godly man. Rahab had been a sinful woman, a harlot. Abram was the friend of God. Rahab had belonged to the enemies of God. What did they have in common? Both exercised saving faith in God. Abram demonstrated his saving faith by his works. So if Abram hadn't actually, you know, demonstrated by what, when God had commanded him to sacrifice his son, that he was willing to even sacrifice that which was most dearest, then Abram's works would have shown that his faith was counterfeit. So by Abram's obedience to God, it shows that his faith in God was true. Get the understanding. Yeah, very important as believers we understand that. What is obedience demonstrated it's true faith in God. I'm sure some of us find that challenging because at times God actually right, convict our hearts. God move our hearts. But yet because of our own sometimes sinful kind of nature, we resist what God is saying to us and then cave in to our own feelings. We obey our feelings rather than obey the voice of God. And sometimes it means... As I say, simple terms, swallowing your pride. God, you know, simple things God might say, right, 
um, that sister or brother might have wronged you, right? Go over and just, you know, reach out a hand of love, a hand of forgiveness to them. And we say, no, 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 no. What they've done, man, yeah, is too awful, too terrible. And yeah, we seek to justify why we should hold on to those feeling of bitterness. I'm just giving you an illustration. And then what happens because we disobey God, right? It festers. And then years later, you and that brother or that sister haven't actually had any kind of fellowship. And then you ask yourself, why is it my spiritual life has become stagnant? You're doing all the right things. You're praying, you're reading your Bible, you're giving more money than anybody else in the church, right? You're doing all the things. But there's that one thing that when God had actually placed in your heart to do, you refuse to do. Because why? You rather yield to your pride rather than yield to the commands of God. I'm just giving you a simple illustration because I know I've been there. Right? Well, it's, it's, it's examples like that. What I mean when I say good works. Right? Are we obedient to God? Right? God doesn't leave us at that place where he saved us and says, right, you get on with your life. I've saved you and right, the rest is up to you. No. Right? Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. So it's a song that touches every fiber in my body because when it says Jesus paid it all, I know what my life was like before. And for him to have paid it all, right? Something I could not even repay him for. But yet, at the same time, Jesus entered into a covenant with us. He paid it all. He gave his all. He gave his life to us. But in return, he, right? He demands, it's not asked, he demands that we give our lives back to him. So it's an exchange. He gave his life for us and now he calls us to give our lives to him. And it's by giving that lives that our works begin. Our first work is to believe. And then he starts that good works in our lives. So even when we come out here on Tuesday evening to help out, right? We're doing it not because we want God to say, oh, right, such and such is doing a wonderful work, right, of charity, of compassion. No, 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 right? It is Jesus that is working out through us. His compassion is love. And we are just his obedient. We're just his vessel. We're just his instrument. We are God's hands and feet. To the unsaved world. So it's by by being obedient, by obeying, that our good work starts. So back to Abram and Rahab. We learn from the passage relating to Abram that faith without works is dead. That faith only, the faith only. The only time this phrase is found in the scripture cannot justify one. That perfect faith necessitates works. And so as I come now to our conclusion, you must say, wow, (laughs) Brother Andrew is very, very (laughs) brief today. Well, give God praise. (laughs) That is unusual for me, I can guarantee, if you know me personally, yes. (laughs) As I say, I'm a long meter. (laughs) Pastor Ephraim can testify that, and a number of you know me that little bit closer. What is our conclusion? 
it is summer anyway, so, right. <laughs> yes. Um, what is our conclusion? It is important that each professing Christian examine his or her own heart and life and make sure that they possess true saving faith, which is a dynamic faith. We need to examine ourselves, as in the book of Corinthians says, let us examine ourselves. Recently, my wife asked me a number of questions about certain things regarding somebody that is in our ministry. And I said, well, you know, that person needs to examine their faith. They need to examine themselves. I can't. That you and I are not called to judge them as such. Right? They must examine whether or not right, they are truly a servant of Christ. Satan is the great deceiver. And one of his advices is imitation. If he can convince a person that counterfeit faith is true faith, then he has that person in his power. Very simple. Happens. Again, someone going to church and um, they're doing all the right religious external things, but deep down the heart has not been converted, the heart has not been transformed. Right? Clearly. That happens to unfortunately many people and because uh, sadly again, many people flock to sometimes right these um, dare I say mega churches. Just as um, I'm sure many people flocked to see Jesus, not because yeah, they were seeking eternal life. They were just seeking immediate gratification again right i know and i said this is a very controversial point and i've read where in um, africa it seems like there is a massive growth in people um going to church and getting involved but others have actually looked and analyzed what these ministries are about and it's not that they're necessarily preaching the undiluted faith in the word of God, what is being promoted? Because as you know, places like the Caribbean, in Africa, right, there is deep-seated poverty. Poverty on a scale that some of us can't even imagine because they've actually seen. You need to go there and see it, witness it. So people in desperate situation, right, someone comes along and said, well, if you join this ministry, God wants to make you into a millionaire. God wants to make you prosperous. God wants to make you so forth. For many people who have only known poverty, going back many generations, right? That is very tempting. That is very alluring. And so many of them will be flocking to church. And even in Jamaica, where I come from, that is now beginning to take a grip, where suddenly people are moving away from the churches which are teaching, right, the historical truth of the faith. That suddenly these churches are sort of expanding. You know, and I've heard some relatives says, you know, such and such going to this church. No, boy, right? And if you don't go there by within... Four to five minutes of it starting, you're lucky if you get in a standing room. And said, "Why? Well, well, you know what? This minister's come from North America, so forth." And he puts somebody up on the podium and says, "Oh, right, this brother, right? When I saw him in Kingston, he was pushing a handcart, and he could barely make ends meet. No, this brother, look, look at his car outside. It's not even his car. So <laughs> Mercs, right? This brother not drive this Mercs, right? You know, lives up in Beverly Hills." Big house, right? People immediately, right, getting sneered by that. And so by next week, right, another 10 people will join because they're here so that this church can bring immediate prosperity. So again, the question is is it a counterfeit faith or is it a true faith? Right? So some of the questions we might ask in examining our faith 
Was there a time when I honestly realized I was a sinner and admitted this to myself and to God? Did we have that time? You know, it comes to people in different ways, but did we have that time of contrition when we knew that we were a sinner, we were powerless to do anything about our situation? We could not do anything in which to merit God's favor. It only was what Jesus Christ had done on the cross. Jesus has paid it all. Was there a time? Was there a time when my heart stirred me to flee from the wrath to come? We, yeah, do, does, does that really concern us? Does that really trouble us? That we know that there is a time appointed for judgment for the old world, everyone. Or is that something that we're so indifferent that when I talk to people about the judgment of God, says, well, perhaps that's something that may happen to others. It may happen. It may not happen. Very casual, very indifferent. Right? But I know from even as a child, you know, my grandparents and my carers, they would drill this into you. God's going to come one day and he's going to judge every man, woman, and child according to deeds done in the body. Was there a time that really troubled us? Have I really been seriously worked over by my sins? Do I see what sin has done in my life? Do I see what it's done in other people's lives? Do I truly understand the gospel? That Christ died for my sin and then rose again. Do I understand and confess that I cannot save myself? Did I sincerely repent of my sins? And let I say this. Repentance is an ongoing daily thing. Yes, there's a once when we come before Christ and says we have repented from our sins, forsaken our old life, to embrace new life in Christ. But it's ongoing. Just as some of you go to the gym, you don't say to me, well, I went to the gym last year, <laughs> right? And I'm now somehow still benefited from it. You know you have to keep going to the gym. Is that right? Yeah. Right, okay. So it is again, that repentance is almost like renewal, daily walking, daily repenting. Don't misunderstand me. As I had no, I had this discussion with my mother-in-law, who's Pentecostal, and she used to come up and says, "Right, right, if you die without repenting, right, you're going straight to hell and so forth." But I think there was a kind of a misunderstanding. She felt that unless you confess every every sin every day, and if something was happening and you passed away, boy, your chances of entering to God's glory, <laughs> yeah, is that no, no, no? I'm not saying that. I'm saying a heart that is set before God. Contrition, it's the, what, the state of the heart, how we position our heart before God. I'm not saying you have to remember, oh boy, today I walked past um, Ashley and I didn't say hello. Oh boy, Lord, I repent from that. Um, I didn't remember to bring that um, glass of orange for Pastor Ephraim. <laughs> oh Lord. So it's not like yesterday, there's a list that God has got and he says, boy, you hadn't forgotten to repent. No, 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 no. It's the heart that is set before him. A heart that says, Lord, I know that, yes, I have fallen short. Lord, forgive me. So what is the state of the heart? Do I since, yes, so do I repent and do I hate, and hate sin and fear God? Again. Or do I secretly love sin and want to enjoy it? Do I want to continue what I was doing before? Now, again, that needs understanding. Yes. Sometimes when God, has, when God has rescued us, when God has saved us right, from a situation, right, the flesh, the devil and the world will do everything to pull us back. 
right? An example is somebody I knew that had severe alcoholism. And God, yeah, true his divine mercy, supernaturally delivered this person immediately from alcohol. And there I use the word dry for one time. But that person shared with me and says, you know what? If I'm walking down the road and there's this pub I used to go, I have to walk another way. Because I know that if I walk down, pass it, it will become easy for me to go back. And it will be really, it will be a real battle. Yes. Right? Even though the person has repented and even though they've been delivered, yet the enemy the flesh, the devil, and the world still wants to pull us back to that old way of life. Now, I'm not speaking about that. I'm speaking about people who say, right, I want to be a Christian, but still live, still enjoy those sinful life and so forth. No, no, the two don't go together. Cannot, right? right. Yeah. There's no place for righteousness in the life of the believer. Right? You can't love sin and love God. Yeah, simply, right? Have I trusted Christ and him alone for my salvation by responding to the commands he has given? Have I confessed my faith in Christ and then been baptized for the remission of my sins as he and his apostles commanded? Has there been a change in my life? Do I maintain good works or are my good works occasional and weak? Do I seek to grow in the things of the Lord? Can others tell that I have been with Jesus? Interesting that when you've met Jesus, your life never remained the same. Right? As you see throughout the, the gospel and throughout the account, so many people that met Jesus never was the same again. Why that personal encounter with Jesus that has brought that change? You remember when Moses went up on the mountain and he had actually at that time with God, when Moses came down, the people couldn't even look at his face. Not because somehow Moses right, had had a deserving moment, it's simply that because he had had an encounter with God and the people could see, the people could see, could understand, could appreciate, so, wow, this is, this, is, this is not Moses that went up, this is the Moses, that boy. He's had a time with God. Not saying you're going to come back with that glow, but, right, once you've truly met Jesus, your life can't be changed. Your life can't remain the same. It just doesn't. Do I enjoy the fellowship of God's people is worship a delight to me. Am I ready for the Lord's return? Or will I be ashamed when he comes for me? So to be sure, not every Christian has the same degree of faith. Those who have had more time to grow should be stronger in faith. right? And yes, sometimes we go through, as I was um, speaking to a brother this morning, right? Sometimes we go through those times when our faith is really tried and tested. I recently have had four close friends and relatives passed away. And at times I felt really low, felt really down. Right? If I find it a struggle at that time to really, you know, because I was so overwhelmed by the sort of emotions of losing those people, I found it really hard to say all the right words in prayer. And one of them was so sudden and tragic that I myself found it very hard to say, Lord, why did you take this person's life? I, that was what was in my heart and mind. Yet there are times when our faith are really tested. Yeah. Those storms do come to each one of us at some point or the other. 
And at that time, you may not feel as joyful and as exuberant right, as you are sometimes when you are actually worshiping and praising and things are going well. Sometimes when you feel as low as anybody can feel. Right? But God, once he's started that work in us, he will continue it through. And it's interesting that in the account of where it talks about the full armor and another dear sister was um, sharing it with me and um, she said to me, which one of the parts of the armor you think is in a sense most crucial to the believer? Is it the sword? Is it the helmet? Yeah, is it the breastplate? I thought it was a sword, the word, but she says, no, it's the shield. Because it says there may come a time when the only thing you can hold on to is your faith. I've seen people who have, you know, ended up almost, you know, become totally senile. Right? Once were very powerful men, women in, in, in God, right? Yeah, who would, yeah, have said some of the most wonderful, the most uplifting prayer were out there working night and day, right? They were what we call in the old term prayer warriors and really excellent model of Christian. And I've seen where, right, they have now reached what you could say the autumn of their days, right? And um, at Alzheimer and so forth, a setin, right? And they can hardly put words together, right? And it grieves me to, to actually go there and, you know, sit there and see and saying, right, this person was one, somebody who was such, a mighty warrior in the Christian faith, reduced to this state. But yet, the one thing I can say um, with such assurance and with such joy is they could still say, right, I still, I still know what I believe. I can't say it in the words I used to. I can't give you these long, right, dissemination, etc. But I know that, yes, he hasn't abandoned me. I remember Miss Eldred, who was our Sunday school teacher, right, yeah, you know, old, yeah, again from Yorkshire, old English lady, went to see her. And, yeah, she could not pray for more than about three words. Right? But the one thing I remember her saying to me on one occasion, I know that he hasn't abandoned me. I know that he's still there with me. I can't put it in words, but no. So yes, right? Once God has placed that faith in us, he will never withdraw it. We go through those times. And that faith would still be there. Right? So, hold on, brethren. So, but f- so, as I say, not every one of us necessarily are always, right, at the high point in our yeah, faith. Some of us are at that low point. Right? But, yeah, God is still with us. So, for the most part, the spiritual inventory can assist a person in determining his or her true standing before God. We know whether we belong to him by the faith he has planted in our lives and the work that then works out. You know, as it says, work out your salvation with faith. What? Right, yes. In other words, it's not saying work for your salvation. It's just work out. Work it out. Live it out. Right? So, finally... And finally, <laughs> may our prayer be similar to that of the psalmist. Psalms 139, 23, 24. One well-known passage. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Can we just pray? Heavenly Father, we can never, ever stop expressing our gratitude that you sent your son to die for us. He gave his life completely for us. He lived out a life that brings glory to your name. He showed us the perfect example of how the believer should live. And Lord, we're just asking you, dear Lord, that your work will continue to be evident in our lives, in our homes, in our place of work, in our community, in our fellowship, wherever we are, that someone, whoever seeks and says, there's something different about that individual, there's something different about that colleague. What is it? It enables them to become curious until that time when you grant them, or grant us the privilege to say, yes, it's because... I have met, I have been transformed by this man called Jesus Christ. Do you want to know? Oh Lord, let that be a living reality in all our lives, Lord. Let it not be, oh, I thought you was a Christian. Then how are you doing all these kind of things? Let it be, now I understand why you say you're a Christian. And so, Lord, we just ask in you that faith in you will continue to grow, continue to expand, continue to be a practical demonstration of your love and of obedience to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.